0: Hello, I'm Jim Irvin, and this is Here's One I Made Earlier conversations with musical creators centering around one key work in their repertoire. My guest today, I'm delighted to say, is the great Steve Cropper, simply one of the most important architects of the sound we hear in our heads whenever we think of rock and roll, soul music or Americana. As a brilliant, thoroughly distinctive guitarist, a songwriter and a producer, he's been involved in some of the most enduring and influential records in pop history in a career that stretches back over 60 years. He was just a teenager when he began at Satellite Records in Memphis as a member of the label's house band, The Marquis. And then when Satellite changed his name, he became a cornerstone of the Stax Powerhouse Booker T and the MGs, co-writing signature hits like Green Onions, Time Is Tight, and a personal favourite of mine, Melting Pot. While a touring musician for Stax in the 1960s, he found himself writing some of the label's greatest hits, among them Eddie Floyd's Knock on Wood, Wilson Pickett's In the Midnight Hour, and with Otis Redding, The Immortal Dock of the Bay, completed just a few days before the singer's tragic death in a plane crash in 1967. The list of great records he's been a part of is long, diverse and impressive and includes work with John Lennon, Rod Stewart, Albert King, Ned Doheny, Levon Helm, The Blues Brothers, Jeff Beck, Jose Feliciano, Mavis Staples, Frank Black, Dolly Parton, Paul Simon and hundreds more. Now comfortably into his 70s, he's showing few signs of slowing down, releasing an already warmly welcomed new album, Fire It Up, a collaboration with esteemed Nashville producer John Tiven. Very good. Steve, welcome. Thank
1: you. <laughs> that was pretty impressive. I'd like to meet that guy sometime, Jim.
0: <laughs> it's an absolute honor to talk to you. Uh, how's the promo for Fire It Up going? Are you keeping busy? Well,
1: it's doing real good. It was number one on the blues charts last week. It's number three this week.
0: It's an extraordinarily energetic record. Was it fun to make?
1: Well, it's, it's designed for people to get up and party and dance a little bit. And so I've referred to it as my first dance record since the late 60s. I think what the, with a the little help of my friends, we did songs that were danceable, that were hits of the day. Yep. And this is all brand new songs, but designed for people to dance to, even though there's a ballad or so on there.
0: Who's singing? Is that Roger Reel? Is that right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. He's singing great. He and Tivin, I guess, wrote most of the lyrics, and Roger's input was impeccable, what can I say?
0: And what prompted it? Why this record right now? What was the sort of inspiration for it?
1: You know, John Tivin called me and he has a studio in his house. So we used to go over there and write all the time. So we started, we presented the tracks to an artist that we were producing. And he played on some of them. And then he said, you know, I'm not going to play on a restaurant. Definitely not going to sing any of them. So we just put them aside. And uh, I completely forgot about it. John called me during this lockdown, the pandemic lockdown, and said, you know, I have access to all these tracks. I'd like to finish them up, put horns on them. And. I've already done some of them, and he sent those tracks to Roger, and Roger sang every song on this album that he's singing, he sang through an iPhone. Really? (laughs) People will find that hard to believe, so if that has anything to do with it, power on.
0: (laughs) You don't, it seems to me, receive enough credit for your songwriting. You've written some incredible songs over the years. Does writing come easy to you, or you're natural, or do you have to labour at it?
1: I don't know. It just seems pretty simple to me. So I don't know. <laughs> but it's very difficult when you go to explain it to people, what you're doing. It's, yes. it's something that they say, where do your ideas come from? Well, a lot of fall out of the ceiling, but I'll be running around and something will remind me of something. And if a title is good enough, I'll write it down. I stuff it in my desk. So the thing that I have been successful with so far is if I have a title that writes itself, that's the title that I really like. So my idea of writing hit songs is you come up with a title that everybody can put their own life into and write their own story if they want to. And I always love titles that write themselves.
0: When you decided to make this a a Steve Cropper record, did you feel it had to feel a certain way, or?
1: Well, I, you know, I'm aware that Steve Cropper has a as a guitar player has a certain sound, and I try to sound like me all the time. Mm-hmm. I don't always pull it off. And I have people come up to me and say, you're Steve Cropper. And I say, well, I try to be. I'm not doing a very good job of it, but I try (laughs) to be sometimes. (laughs) You know, I like not being recognized all the time. Other people, they want to be recognized.
0: When you're writing, do you treat the parts that you're playing as an essential part of the composition? Is that...
1: Well, musically, I try to go with the chord changes. And... uh, I don't let the guitar necessarily influence the song, but I let some of the changes influence the way the song goes, mm-hmm. which will influence the melody But by the changes. And, uh, you know, back in the day, a thing like Knock on Wood, which sounds simple enough, it is, but it starts on a, on a bridge change for us. It start, It's in the key of E, but it starts on an A change. I don't want an A. That's like a bridge to us. a songwriter that would be you'd write a song in e and you go to a for the bridge and you know in the old days you had two verses of bridge and a verse and out and that's just the way that was the formula used
0: i suppose you learned with the mg's how to make backing tracks that were hooky before anyone was singing on them didn't you
1: you know some of the things that Booker of 10 mg's wrote we actually turned into vocals later
0: but some of them if they didn't need
1: a vocal you just put them out and you know go with it and I think we were very lucky to get Green Onions. I know we were. I mean, there was a lot of things that contributed to it being su- successful. But it was still an accident because the singer didn't show up, as far as we knew. Had he come back to the back, there probably would have never been a Green onion.
0: It was at the end of a session, wasn't it? Was that right?
1: We were asked to come in and play behind this artist that Jim wanted to record on a Sunday. We only worked Monday through Friday. But he had us come in on a Sunday. We were willing to do it. But he, he never sang up. He never showed up. But Mrs. Axton told us later that he did show up at the record shop to prove to somebody that he couldn't sing because he'd been singing all night long, Saturday night. He woke up that, that Sunday morning with no voice. So he said, how can I record? I don't have a voice. Billy Lee Riley was his name, for those who don't know. I knew him as the voice for a elixir or whatever, Dr. Tishner's, and uh, he did radio ads for him. And uh, had he showed up in the studio, like I said, there probably never would have been a Green Onions. But Because we thought he did the show, we were just keeping our chops up, you know, and we started playing some blues. And Jim Stewart, who was ready to record that day, pushed the red button and recorded the blues thing, with it, which wound up on the B side of Green Onions. And uh, he made the, the comment, he said, guys, come in and listen. He made the comment, if we put something like this out, have you got anything you can put on the B side? And we just were dumbfounded. He even recorded in the first place. He said, do you think about putting that out? We didn't know. And we all just said no. And then I looked at Booker, I got to thinking, I said, Booker, about two weeks ago, you played me a couple of riffs that you thought would be good for a a vocal song. And he said, well, I don't remember, but uh, you come down to the organ and I'll play a couple and you tell me which one. And the first one he played was Green Onions. I said, that's it. (laughs) Four cuts later, we had Green Onions. That's lucky to me. That's being in the right place at the right time, yes, but it's still a lot of luck.
0: What was your relationship with music growing up? Was there a lot in the house? No.
1: Nobody that I know of was ever musically inclined. I had one uncle by marriage that played piano and fiddle, and he bought a guitar. He didn't play guitar, but he bought it, kept it in the closet. So somebody came on for his, came over for his afternoon sing-alongs and all, and a guy said, you know, I play guitar, but I don't have one with me. He had one there. So I asked my aunt couple of times could I get it out I just plunked it like a rubber band I just want to hear the strings vibrate I didn't know what it was I mean I knew what a guitar was but I didn't know what it what it was capable of doing and I got my first guitar when I was 15 or something 14 15 and bought it out of the Sears catalog and I remember the delivery sitting on the front porch until until that truck turned the corner I said here it is and it came in a cardboard box no case I paid paid for the guitar it was It had strings with it, but the bridge hadn't been set up. It hadn't been tuned at all. I went, oh my God. So after they drop it off to me, they said, that'll be a 25 cent delivery fee. And I went, well, all I have is the money for the guitar, 17, whatever it was, in taxes. And uh, my mom always said later, she said, if I'd never lent Steve that quarter for the delivery fee, he'd have never been a guitar player. (laughs) (laughs) She might be right. I don't know. We'll never know. And I wrote a song on it called Ducky. And I'm telling a friend of mine about it. And I and I knew it was a pretty good song, but I didn't know how good it was. A guy I went to school with, B.B. Cunningham, his dad worked for Sam Phillips. Okay. Blake Cunningham. He he did some singing and whatever. He come home one day, and we were working on a lead shoot. And he walks in the door, Dad, you're here, okay. And he turns around and he says, what are you doing? he said, well, I'm writing a little lead shoot for Steve, a song he wrote. And he said, that's pretty catchy. He said, uh, do you mind if I record it and looked at me? And I said, no. He goes in his bedroom, comes back out, he has a wire recorder. Wow. <laughs> Set it on the piano and plugs it in. <laughs> he said, okay, play it again. And he said, uh, you know, this guy named Bill Justice. Bill had just come off of uh, two number one records, Raunchy and College Man on the Dick Clark Show. And uh, he was in town looking for new material. He said, I'm going to take it to him. Well, BB, his son, comes running up to me about <laughs> two days later. He said... You know that song you had me do? I said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, Bill Justice loves it, wants to cut it." I said, "You're kidding." So when I was 15, I got my 16, I guess, got my first royalty check from Sam Phillips International for having the flip side of a number three record on Billboard.
0: Wow! You played with the Marquis at Satellite. Now, was Jim Stewart running Satellite?
1: He was. He was, and the band was another name. But they said, if you're going to put a record out, you got to change the name of your band. Oh boy. So because we were at uh, a studio, they wanted to call it the Marquise. And uh, because we have a marquee up front, I said, can I spell it? And they said, yeah. So I changed it to the Mar-Keys because they had the Delmars and all these other bands. So that was, that's what we did. We put it out under the Marquees and had da-da-da-da-da. So I've been asked through the years, why do you think that was such a hit? And I never did know. I couldn't figure it out. I said, well, it's catchy. And I, said, I didn't know. So I remembered as I got older that the first time I played that record to my mom, she started doing the twist. I went, da that, that. I said, wow, I guess it was the first twist instrumental.
0: <laughs> tell me about uh, Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton. What were they like?
1: Well, Jim's still around. Estelle is not, but uh, great people. And Estelle, to tell you about her, she really loved her music. She always had the radio on, was always listening to rhythm and blues music, and I used to pick up her son all the time. I walked to school with him and when I got a car, uh, I would pick him up and drive him around. He played saxophone, wasn't very good at that time, but he turned out to be one of the greatest players on the planet, Charles Packy Axton. Packy was his uh, nickname. I don't know where he got that from. He wanted to be in the band we had in high school. We played every song that was danceable. James Brown songs, Ray Charles songs, and you know, those kind of things. We did some Jimmy Reed, "Hang Ballard and the Midnighters, Had Annie Had a Baby, and that was always a big hit. The Five Royals, dedicated to the one I love, we did that one. But in the conversation, he wanted to be in the band. I said, well, we're not looking for horns. And he said in that conversation, he said, my uncle owns a recording studio. And I went, whoa, okay. Can you come over for a rehearsal this Saturday? What come to find out his uncle, Jim Stewart, had some recording equipment in a garage in North Memphis. So it had to be 60, 61, somewhere around there. It was about a year after we graduated. The first studio, Satellite, one of them, was out in Brunswick, Tennessee, about 20, 30 minutes outside of Memphis. Chips Bowman was the engineer and art director at the time. And so when the old Capitol Theater building became available, he tells Jim about it. And Jim says, well, Chips, I can't afford that. So he goes to Estelle and says, I need to borrow the money because there's a great opportunity to get this building and build a studio. And so Estelle said, well, I'll lend you the money. If you will, uh, let me have a record shop up front, which he agreed to. So she mortgaged her house, lent him the money. He got the the property and, uh, that's the stacks building. We all know it was still satellite. And then they, they get a letter pretty soon after we'd opened saying, you know, we already have a satellite records out. You'll have to change your name. So they went to change it. So they came up with Stax, S-T for Stuart and A-X for Axton, Stuart Axton. <laughs> it's always been that. So,
0: What was Jim like as a producer?
1: <clears throat> well, he had a good ear for music, I know that, for songs. And, and the thing I finally figured out years later when I was talking to Duck and I got to thinking about it, and he said, you know, I enjoyed my time at Stax. It was the greatest fun I ever had in my life. He said, I just wish Jim hadn't looked so grumpy, through the control window. And I got to think about it, and I figured Jim out. I said, you know what he did? He always looked depressed, like he wasn't having a good time, and that's how he pulled the best out of somebody. And I learned that by taking him a song, and he always go, I don't know, Steve, no, I don't think that's any good. And if you fought for it, he knew knew that you had something. If you didn't fight for it, okay, go on to the next thing. So that was a good ploy on his part, I think. He was pretty smart. He also had a good ear for music.
0: And, of course, he and Estelle created this integrated workplace, didn't they, which must have been very unusual for Memphis at that time, was it not? Yeah, pretty much. Was there ever any kind of tension at Stacks or just the usual sort of workplace politics? None whatsoever.
1: Everybody always gets into the black and white thing. I will tell everybody this, the truth. There was no colour at Stacks, not until after Martin Luther King was assassinated or whatever did life change at all for anybody. There was no color. We worked as a team. We didn't look at each other being different, different this and different that. And I used to get invited over to Rufus Thomas's house for dinner all the time. And I watched these kids grow up. And they treated me like one of theirs. And then, you know, they would get treated the same way at my house. So it didn't matter. And, uh, you know, when I was doing people like Eddie Floyd and Otis and all that, I know we wrote a lot of those songs in the motel room, but they also came over to the house. And, and Otis and I actually wrote some songs in my house. He was welcome anytime, any anybody, any artist that we ever worked with at Stax was always welcome at my house or Jim's house. It might have been, and they say, I read the history books, they say Memphis is the most segregated town in the South. I'm, I have I don't know. I was brought up there, so I would have to disagree with part of that. It might have been segregated, but if it did, nobody dealt with it, and all of the problems that people were having was somewhere else. Down in Alabama and Georgia and, you know, what wasn't in Memphis, Tennessee. <laughs> I, I don't know why it wasn't, but it wasn't. And even with Booker T later, there was a couple of times maybe that we went to check into the downtown hotel. And I said, well, you boys, can you stay here? And we just go, say, oh, okay. We just jump back in the car and go to the outskirts of town in a the motel. They'd be glad to see us.
0: Stax's output was phenomenal, wasn't it? So uh, there must have been loads of sessions that you did that you, you don't even remember playing.
1: I have had fans in the past come up to me and say, "Man, I love that lick you played on so and so." And I said, "You know, I've played on three hundred songs since then. I have no idea what I played. but I bet you this. I bet you if you bring me the record and I play it, I can tell you what figure out what I played. He did the way I played it. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> Were you using the same guitar and the same setup on on all those records? Pretty much, yeah.
1: I mean, the amps change because some people, they'll tell you something, one thing, because they want to please you. Knowing one can't. They said, ah, by the time he plays, I'll have it. <laughs> no. You show up and say, where's my amp? What are you talking about? <clears throat> and I can't do, you know, the old Chuck Berry trick. He would uh, chuckle something else. He was a genius in his day. But here's what he would do to some of the promoters. He'd say, where's my amp? And they'd go, well, we couldn't get it. Well, don't tell me that now. I just happen to have one in my trunk of my car for another $5,000. I'll bring it up.
0: <laughs> <laughs> one of my all-time favorite records is Eddie Floyd's Big Bird. What do you remember oh, about that's that?
1: Oh, it's a great one, yeah. You know, Booker actually wrote that song, and I, and I think Booker actually played on it. There's a lot of things that Booker wrote, and I said, instead of me learning it, Booker, I'll let's engineer it or something like that, and uh, you go ahead and play it on the guitar. So there's several songs, and I have to hear them. That was one of them you brought up that Booker actually played on.
0: Uh, so he's playing the guitar on that, is he?
1: Yeah, he'd play anything. Booker's a well-rounded musician.
0: That riff is a monster, isn't it? The opening riff of that song. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Uh, what about not, uh, Knock on Wood? That was written in a motel room, wasn't it? Yep. If you, uh,
1: I'll tell you where it was written. If, if you go up on the balcony, the room outside of where Martin Luther King was assassinated, it's only a two-story motel. If you go down one and over one, that's where we wrote Knock on Wood.
0: <laughs> wow. Out
1: by the pool. <laughs> I remember it well. What I don't remember is what we might have written in the room that Martin Luther King was assigned to. I know we wrote in that room. Wrote songs in about every
0: room in the hotel. What, why were you there all the time writing? What was the, the, the sort of process that led to that?
1: Because they gave us a good deal on. Uh, that's where we put most of the artists that would fly into town, and they were very happy to be there, and it was convenient and they had room service there, and uh, and they gave us a deal if Stax was paying for the room. But we stayed in a bunch of them. The Holiday Inn where Wilson and I wrote Midnight Hour and two other songs, that has been torn down. That's not there anymore. I don't know if the Holiday Inn, the white one on 3rd Street, is still there or not. And Otis and I wrote a bunch of songs in that hotel
0: or motel. See, I assume that most of the Stax artists lived in Memphis, but they didn't then.
1: The only artist that I remember actually living in Memphis, other than Booker, would be Rufus Thomas. Yeah. And, uh, you know, William Bell was around, and uh, but Eddie Flo was from out of town, Wilson Pickett was from out of town, Don Colvay out of town, uh, Johnny Taylor out of town, on and on and on.
0: When you sat down to write, were you, were you always thinking... Let's write a Stax style song, or was it or were you trying to expand all the time? You tr- no,
1: never never said that this was gonna be a Stax groove or, or no. There was nothing different about it. No. And uh my sound changed basically when I went to other studios because I played with different musicians. I didn't change my style at all. I just played the same thing I always played, but it sounded different because of used different musicians, different drummer, different bass player. If you had Al Jackson and Doug Dunn on it, it sounded like book of G's.
0: Yeah. Tell me about Otis. How did you first meet him?
1: Well, I first met him. I, I thought he was a valet or just a driver for Johnny Jenkins. And we were there to do Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers. He was the lead singer in that band. I did not know that. But I saw him get out of the Cadillac, go to the trunk, get out, start getting out amps and all that stuff. And and I go I remember running down and saying, Hey man, we got mics in there. You don't need to bring up those mics. Bring in the amps or whatever you want to do, and Johnny's guitar and but we've got our own microphones, and so he did that, and that's the first time I met him. And uh, then later, Al he goes to Al Jackson and says, I want y- you guys to hear me sing. And Al says, well, you know, Steve's the our director, but he only holds auditions and stuff on Saturdays, so you- he probably won't be able to hear you sing. So Al did come to me, and he said, you know that guy who was- drove the car up here? I said, yeah, the big tall guy? I said, yeah. He was wanting you to hear him sing. I said, man, Al, we're on a session, and I don't have time to hear him saying he said that's what I told him so at the end of the session Jim said well guys we're not doing very good here let's just do it tomorrow okay he sent everybody home a little early. we were up listening to playbacks and and Al come to me and he said Steve that guy that I told you about he's still bugging me to death can you take five seconds out of your time and get him off my back I said yeah (laughs) so I go down leave the control room go down I said bring him down here by the piano so oh, this big guy shows up, Otis shows up, and I said, okay, sing something. He said, "Or play something. He said, I don't play piano. I play a little guitar, he calls it. And uh, I said, well, okay. He said, do you know any of those? Do you play piano? I said, not, not enough. I said, just to write with a little bit. He said, you know any of them church quads? Quads. <laughs> I said, you talking about this? It was just six, eight triplets. Church, that, da, da, And he starts saying these. I said, whoa, stop it right there. I couldn't believe it. The hair on my arm stood up when that guy opened his mouth. I went, oh, my God. He said, you don't like my song? I said, man, I love your song, but I want to make sure that Jim Stewart hears this. I'll go run up the control room. I said, Jim, stop whatever you're doing and get down here and hear this guy sing. Steve, what are you talking about? I said, get down here and hear this guy sing. And I started again, and Otis started singing. And so Jim says, man, we got to get this on tape real quick. Get the band back in here, okay?
0: So that became uh, These Arms of Mine, yeah?
1: Yep. So, Duck reminded me in Tokyo of the, the day, the week that he would passed away. He said, do you remember running out on the sidewalk and saying, he said, I was putting my bass in the trunk of my car and you said, "Duck, get your bass back out. We got to put this song down real quick. So, I didn't know Duck even played on it. He reminded me that he did. And I have to tell everybody that Johnny Jenkins actually played guitar on that and I played piano. And I had to <laughs> read my of that too. Booker said, I played on that. And I said, No, you didn't. He said, He came around later and said, You think you played on that? I said, No, I played on that. Piano, we're talking about. And uh, he said, Okay. So the next morning, instead of cutting Johnny Jenkins and the Pine Toppers, we were cutting a B side, which turned out to be Hey Baby or something like that for these songs of mine. Yeah. And of, of all people, the disc jockey here in Nashville, John R. Richburg, on that radio station had a 100 watt, all clear AM station. Played Otis for the first time and broke that record. Uh,
0: early on, I heard that early on he sang more like kind of Little Richard or something. Is that right? Did, did, did... Very early
1: in his career, he did, and he had already cut uh, two sides, I think, in uh, in California. And I heard those songs later. I heard them uh, about ten or fifteen years ago. I'm going, oh my god, he sounded like a Little Richard. So I have always said, if you took a half a jar of Little Richard and a half a jar of Sam Cooke and shook it up, and poured it out, you'd get Otis ready. <laughs> And you would. I'm pretty sure about that.
0: <laughs> you played behind Otis when uh, the Stax Review came to the to the UK, didn't you? But were you always in the band, or was it just for that visit?
1: That was the first time that the Session Band went on tour and did live shows with the artist. Yeah, It was always another, another band that went on the road. We had a great time over there doing that stuff. And so Otis said, I want you guys to do this. And we couldn't do it. And we said, Otis, I, forget trying to pay us or whatever. There's no way can't do it and but we will suggest something take the Barqués because they were the band that really copied us a lot <clears throat> and they had their horn they had it all going together and had a hit record and all that sort of stuff so he said okay and he took them and he was in love with the Barqués, thought that was great and i can't believe they went down the plane too some of them didn't the bass player didn't Nuck's still around he's still with us james alexander he's still alive and uh, zelma as far as i know is still alive too and he and zelma were on on a private plane and they took some of the equipment off the plane. He told me personally, he said, the only thing I remember about that crash, I woke up and I was spinning. He was asleep. He said, I just hung on my pillow. Next thing I know fishermen pulled me out of the water. So he got thrown out of the plane right next to where these guys were fishing, but they couldn't find uh, because it was so foggy and the, and the lake was so dingy. The divers couldn't stay down. It was so cold. They couldn't stay down long enough to see anything. So they didn't find Otis. The plane went down on a Sunday. They didn't find him and Bob the pilot until uh, that f- coming Friday. Well, a long time. Sitting in the morning sun, I'll be sitting in the evening come, watching the ships roll in, and then I'll
0: watch them roll away again. Yeah. I'm sitting on the dock of the bay Watching the tide roll away Ooh, just Sitting on the dock of the bay Wasting time Released in January 1968, a month after Otis Redding's death, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was an instant success, rising to the top of the R&B charts and the Billboard Hot 100, selling four million copies and winning two Grammys for R&B song and male vocal performance. American collection agency BMI calculated that it was the sixth most played song of the 20th century, and it has been covered dozens of times by people like Bob Dylan, Glenn Campbell, Peggy Lee, Cher, Willie Nelson, Pearl Jam, T-Rex, Sergio Mendez, Sammy Hagar, Michael Bolton and Justin Timberlake. So after he'd played Monterey, it was a big success there, the Monterey Festival in the summer of 67 in San Francisco, he had to have a vocal operation, and he stayed on a houseboat. Is that right? And that's where he started writing "Dock of the Bay." Tell me the sort of sequence of events.
1: Well, after the the Vote tour, Otis was staying on uh, Bill Graham's houseboat in Sausalita, when he wrote, when he started writing "Dock of the Bay." So I had for years, even though I produced it and co-wrote I always thought that he was talking about ships going under the Golden Gate Bridge. When he says, "I watch the ships roll in, I watch them roll away again." It was all about, you know, he was, he was watching the ferries come over and park. Yeah. So that's what he said. I watched the ships roll in, and I watched them roll them away again. So I say he was actually talking about the ferries. Was He called me when he flew in from Macon on his private plane to Memphis. He called the studio, and he says, I just want to see if you're at the studio. I'm coming right down. Yeah, he said, get out your gut tar, get out your gut tar. And I said, what? Get your gut tar, <laughs> get your gut tar, G-U-T-A-R. I always call it a guitar. I say, when you guitar, you play it. That's why they call it a guitar. <laughs> Same thing about a sitar. You just sitar to play it. <laughs> they named it a sitar.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> but you got to kind of be from the country of the South to say that.
0: It's a very different kind of performance to his other stuff, isn't it, Doc of the Bay? Why was that, do you think?
1: Well, you know, we had tried for a long time, for months, to get a crossover on Otis. We knew how big he was. He was very big in Europe. But he didn't get any pop play in the States, and we needed something that would generate some pop play. And we knew when we cut it that that was the song. Before we cut it, we knew that was probably the song. <clears throat> so we were looking for what we would call a crossover.
0: Yeah. So that day when he came in and asked you to get out your guitar, what um, what did he have? What? How much of the song was there? You
1: know, I don't remember. I know he had the first verse, the intro, of the first verse. And most of the second verse. And I know that I helped him. And I wrote the bridge, the changes to the bridge. And uh, he kind of ad-libbed the lyrics on that. He sang the same lyrics twice like an old blues song. And the thing about the whistling is real simple. When I wrote with Otis, you never wrote an ending. Because he would always ad-lib and come up with something different. Yep. So like every other song we ever wrote, we just stopped writing when the song was over. That was it. Yep. And uh, he couldn't think of what what to do, so he started whistling. And I think I made some comment back when that I said he probably forgot what we had written for the ending. When I think back now, I said, we never did write endings. And I remember our Jackson one time, we were doing some song, and he said, let's just start there, meaning that's where the groove is. Let's just start there. Let's don't do three verses in a bridge to get there. Let's just start there. That's pretty pretty phenomenal.
0: So how long did Dock of the Bay take to write all together?
1: I think we finished it that afternoon, 45 minutes at the most.
0: Oh, really? That quick? Yep. So when Otis left the studio that day, what state was the song in at that point? What was was down? Was it just...
1: Well, it was all done. and, And so Otis and I knew that was the best thing we had. And so after every session that week, we would pull Dock of the Bay out and listen to it again because it was the best thing we had. But we knew it wasn't finished yet. And uh, even though we had cut horns on it and, and piano, acoustic guitar and all that, it wasn't finished. The last time I saw him, I was setting up to do the lead guitar licks. W- we, he and I, Otis and I agreed that probably backgrounds would be the best thing to fill it out. Not strings, but backgrounds. And so we agreed to it. And I said, you know, Otis, if you can wait a week or so, I said, my next artist that I'm producing is the Staple Singers. I said, without even calling them, I know they'd be more than happy to sing on one of your songs. He said, okay, we'll go with them. So he popped his head in and says, I'll see you Monday. And I was just setting up to do the electric guitar licks. So he never heard those. And uh, it was too early. They wanted to record record out too quick. And they said, on Monday, they said, uh, I, uh, Jim came to me and he said, I just got a call from New York. They want us to get something out on Otis right away. What do you got ready on Otis? I said, Jim, we don't have anything ready on Otis. He said, well, get something ready. <laughs> what? I said, Otis just went down his plane yesterday. I can't do that. He said, yeah, you can. You're going to have to. I said, I did. And I started that next Tuesday morning at 7.30, and I handed it to a flight attendant at 7.30 on a Wednesday morning. So 24 hours later, I, I handed her the master down the bottom of the steps. And so she does that when she gets to New York, LaGuardia, and they had sent send a representative from Atlantic Studios over. And he took it from her and took it right to the, to the vat, to the pressing plant. so we had records out five days before Christmas, DJ copies.
0: When did the idea for the sound effects crop up?
1: I got the idea when I started mixing. I said, I can't make this sound any bigger than it is. And that's when I got the idea about the gulls and the the waves, ocean waves. I stopped my mix and I called a buddy of mine over at a jingle company. I said, do you have anything with gulls and and ocean waves on it? He said, yeah, come on over. I'll make you one. And uh, so he made me a loop on it. So I put the gulls on one side of the two-track and the waves on the other. So dock of the bay, sitting on the dock of the bay, was mixed on six-track. So it was just a loop going around and around. The only thing I had to do was trial and error to make sure that when I pulled up the seagulls or the the waves that I didn't get uh, the splice. Where you'd hear it click a moment.
0: What's what's great about that is it makes it feel like the song was recorded outdoors, doesn't it? It's got that, <laughs> that real kind of openness to. it.
1: Sounds like you're right there on the beach. Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic.
0: <laughs> Do you think it's a sad song or a peaceful song? I can never quite make up my mind.
1: You know, I don't know. I don't think we had. Uh, I don't think Otis had any intention, neither to die. So I say he was actually talking about the fairies. Just wasting time, and I I went over and over, and I I still say to this day, the thing that made that record as big as it was when he said, I can't do what 10 people tell me to do. Everybody lives by that. Mm. You know, There's always somebody other than their foreman or their boss telling them what to do. They go home, they got a bunch of people. I can't do what 10 people tell me to do. So I guess I'll just remain the same. Sitting here, resting my bones, this loneliness won't leave me alone.
0: See, that to me is is the line where it suddenly becomes sad, isn't it? Because up until then, it's quite oh, okay. kind of wistful, and then, and then he the, the loneliness. Yeah, he says the loneliness won't leave me alone, and you go, oh, who who is this guy?
1: <laughs> you know, I'm a songwriter, and the lyrics to me are just lyrics. They might mean a little something to the person writing, but that to me is, you know, it's better if you just make it worldly, give it give it to everybody and get away from it. And, and they said, how'd you make it? I said, I don't know how I made it. But if I did know, I'd bottle it and give it to everybody. It'd be real simple to do.
0: I put out a tweet recently asking people to name one perfect song, and this song got many votes. Did you know it was perfect, that it was a classic as soon as you'd written it? You said you kept pulling it up to listen to it again. You, you knew it had something, didn't you?
1: Well, do you know, Jim, do you know the number one played song in the world? I will tell you, it's not sitting on the dock of the bay, I know that. You've Lost That Love and Feeling.
0: Ah, uh, okay.
1: Yeah. Written by Barry Mann and Cynthia Wilde. Know them well. Great song. I think Dock of the Bay was number three. I don't know what it is today. I can call BMI and find out the number one played song. But I've got an award that says 11 million plays. That's a lot of plays. <laughs> played the song over and over and over. 24 hours a day for so many days and you arrive at 1 million and that will blow your mind. When you think of 10 or 11 million, you go, oh my God, <laughs> that's the, mm. that's longer than most people live. Absolutely.
0: I mean, there we're talking go. about it now all these years later, not because Otis died, but because it's a great song. It would have been a big hit had he lived, wouldn't it? I've th-
1: I, you know, i always thought that as well. They said that record would have never made it had Otis not died in a plane crash. I said, Bologna, that was a great song. We knew we had a good song. Yeah. And they said, what would Otis be doing today? And I said, well, I hope he'd still be singing Dark of the Bay in his show.
0: So you mentioned earlier that you'd recorded a lot of material in that week before he died, hadn't you?
1: But that week, Ronnie came to me and he said, Do "You know, notice, have you noticed how well Otis is singing? And I said, yeah, his voice sounds better than it ever did. And I guess that was because of his operation. Now, that was something Otis didn't talk about, but we knew he had done it. So we started pulling out old tracks that uh, he had sang on before that we'd put aside because he was so hoarse or whatever, didn't think it was good enough for a record. Also, that week, we started recording stuff at night. Uh, two which I I still think are great songs, had we done them with the whole band. One of them was called Direct Me, and the other one was called Champagne and Wine. We also wrote uh, Ton of Joy, uh, Pounds and Hundreds, And it's just the three of us, Ronnie Capone is playing drums. I'm playing bass, guitar, piano, and all that stuff. Otis is playing some tambourine and singing and (laughs) we made it up. And the rest of it, we cut uh, on a session, like Dr. Bay was cut on a session. But that week we started calling ourselves the Midnight Recorders. And then later (laughs) they picked that up when Otis, I mean, when uh, Isaac Hayes became famous, that album that he cut, not Shaft, but before that, was all done at night. And they called themselves the Midnight Recorders. I said, we were the first on that. What,
0: um, what impact did Otis's death have on, on the label, sort of the atmosphere at the at Stax?
1: You know, that I don't know the impact he had. We just knew we had a good artist. And uh, what I don't think anybody knew, and I didn't even know this at the time, that uh, Atlantic still had a contract on Sam and Dave. So they had sold out to the Kenny Corporation, which Kenny Corporation in New York had all the parking in New York much bigger than Atlantic. And so when they sold, Jim called and said, uh, Jerry, where's our cut on this? He said, well, I'm sorry, we didn't include you guys in the, in the contract on this one. Really? But I think uh, a bad decision was made. Atlantic should have kept us in the deal and done something that they didn't. And that's fine. So we were left on our own and, and Jim made a deal with Paramount records.
0: Right. But it wasn't just Sam and Dave, though, was it? I thought it was the whole, all of Stax's publishing or something. No,
1: nah, they might have. Well, I don't know if it was all of Stax's publishing. I knew, I knew that they didn't have a contract with me. Nobody did. And Jim and I had a personal agreement, and he trusted me, and I trusted him. So that's where it went. However, when I left, they made me uh, sign a piece of paper, a letter, stating that all the songs from Dock of the Bay previous to that was all written for East Biffin's Music. And uh, they contracted to them. And, you know, the publishing company wound up with it. And I think uh, the bank actually took over at first. It wasn't Atlantic. The bank later took it over. And union planners pulled a rug on Jim, and I would advise him never to take out a $7 million loan, but he did. And they did the call on him. They called him in on it, and they said, well, do we want your publishing. So he still had all the publishing. That was Eastman Music.
0: Oh, I see. So it was the bankruptcy that where he lost control of it eventually. Right.
1: That was that was a different thing.
0: Okay. So you stayed on after Otis's death for a few years at Stax. What prompted you to leave uh, eventually?
1: Well, uh, you know, there's two things about me leaving. One is I told Jim and Al Bell, I said, I'm not going in, across the street and go to competition, meaning I'm not going to continue just to do R&B. I'm going to do Steve Cropper, but I did uh, Dreams and a bunch of other stuff, a bunch of pop stuff for Columbia. Mm-hmm. And I uh, had a ball doing it, and had a, had, you know, and then I wound up doing Jose Feliciano for RCA later. Mm-hmm. The things that I did in the middle, I did one I'm really proud of, but my name's not on it. It's Bump City by Tower Power.
0: Oh yeah, I know the record. <laughs> is that Down you? Down to
1: the nightclub, and still a young man, was a big record, and uh, you know, I produced him, and we had a blast.
0: Now, before you left Stax, uh, you made Melting Pot with Booker T and the MGs, which is a, a great record. Tell me a bit about making that.
1: <laughs> I said this earlier, I've said it many times, <clears throat> I read a review that said, not much new here from Booker T and EMGs. And I'm going, I guess this guy didn't listen to the record. Because what was different about it was very simple. It was the first album that Booker T ever had. that was all written, all new songs written by Booker T. Most oh. of the things we did, not most of them, but a lot of them were cover songs. The ones we had hits on were not cover songs, but, we, but every album had a bunch of cover songs. The other thing about the album is the first album that was ever recorded that was recorded outside of Stack Studios. It was Melting Pot was cut at A uh, and R Studios, I think, in New York. Ah, okay. And Shelly Akers was the engineer on it.
0: Sounds great. It's a great sound.
1: So I knew we had a pretty good record, and I was the one that came up with the title Melting Pot. For
0: but the decision to make that that track—it's it's a long track, isn't it? Melting Pot—it's about eight minutes long. Yeah, it... it's
1: pretty pretty crazy, pretty jazzy, whatever.
0: Yeah, but it really sustains. It's a
1: fun song to play live, and I know uh, that later when we went out and toured, that we started off with that song. And it's it just has a growing thing. It gets better and better and better as it goes. Yeah. And we can start that. You know, the intro does the same thing. But I, I started with the guitar, and then uh, Duck comes in, and, and then Booker comes in, and it, it's it just works out real good for us.
0: And Al plays a blinder on that one, doesn't he? It's what a groove. Yeah, that, that oh one. my
1: God, what a groove. <laughs> when he goes that cross stick, that is just unbelievable yeah. what he did.
0: Fantastic. And was that a surprise in the room? Did he suddenly do that and you all kind of looked yeah, over? Yeah, it was an
1: accident that he did. Same thing with, <laughs> uh, was it Try Little Tenors? I think it was with Otis. And Al started that cross stick. That was not something that was designed and worked out right beforehand. He just did that on that take. And it worked wow. out real good. And I went into a more of a chilipso beat behind that. But I love what Otis saying. Oh, them young girls, they do get wearied wearing that same old shabbity shabbity dress.
0: Yeah. Tell me a bit about your 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 approach to your solo career, the the other albums that you you've put out in the eighties. Well,
1: you know that was somebody else's idea. I never cared about being out front. I was proud myself on helping the other guy doing something to help the other guy. So I've never tried to be, I never have worked on trying to be that solo guy, but I am sometimes. I go out and do a show with Steve Cropper, and people try tried to book me and all that. And I said, nope, I don't want any part of it. I should have never taken the first ones because then I wouldn't get the offers. But uh, I wind up doing uh, Midnight Hour, Dock of the Bay, Knock on Wood, uh, Nine Nine and a Half, and I do Water, which was on the Jam Together album.
0: So you see yourself as a collaborator more than a frontman then? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And uh, I'm just too critical of my own stuff. Way too critical. Uh, I like coming up with an idea and somebody sitting next to me saying, man, i like that. play that again. Mm. And that just gets me going, gives me a a chance to come up with something different, you
0: know, or better. The thing about your style is that you're always brilliant at at a sort of economy, playing the least necessary, almost, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, if,
1: you know, people always talk about you develop a style of this, and when I listen to the old records, I say, you know, when I stop playing rhythm to play a lick or something, you don't miss a rhythm, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's right in time with it. It just sounds yeah. like it's covering it up, but it isn't covering up anything, basically.
0: <laughs> Learning to get out of the way is one of the great arts of being a sideman, isn't it?
1: That all comes from listening to what everybody else is doing. If you only listen to yourself, you're not hearing yourself. And I proved that one time out in L.A. The studio was so proud of this new headphone system they had. They said, this is great. The musicians can mix their own headphone. So I knew it wasn't working. And the producer gets on the phone and he says, on the teleprompter, and he says, uh, hey, guys, why don't you break for lunch? It's not going. Let's try it again after you come back from lunch. So I stayed. I didn't go to lunch. And I went in the control room. I said, put up that last track we did again. He said, you want to hear that? I said, yeah, I want to hear it. So he puts it up. He's okay. And he starts playing it. So I went out and listened to everybody's headphones. The guitar player had his guitar all the way up, the piano player had his piano up, the drummer had his drums up, the bass (laughs) had the bass up, and nobody else. I "I knew there was a reason why this thing wasn't gelling, wasn't clicking. (laughs) You need to go back to your old headphone set. So let the musicians hear what the engineer's hearing.
0: Are there any guitarists you've really rated over the years?
1: Well, probably me. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but there's too many great ones out there to pick somebody out I, and I say this a guy I produced years ago Jeff Beck just got better and better and better and they say who? if they asked me who's the best guitar player you ever produced I'd have to say Jose Feliciano really now if they say best singer they're going to think I'm saying Otis Redding I don't know I'm not going to say that I don't show favoritism and I wouldn't show <laughs> favoritism to uh, Jose if I didn't produced three albums on him and I knew how good he was yeah he, he did something I have never heard anybody do he could pick out a song like the Allman Brothers harmony with Dickie Betts playing harmony and all he could play both parts at the same time wow wow is right also he has a, he has something in the back of his throat he can sing harmony to anything he's singing if he wants to that blows people away oh, it blew yeah. me away the first time I heard it where's that other voice coming through the back of his throat
0: <laughs> that's crazy he knew how to control it. He's some. That's there, amazing. Man. Who who were the players that that inspired you to pick up a guitar? Then, but what were the things that that you first uh, heard? That-
1: I really don't know. I think I was inspired by the same people everybody else was: Les Paul, Chet Atkins. Yeah. And I I decided to go with uh, Loman Paul and Five O Nobody ever heard of him, and maybe yeah. Bo Diddley. They heard of Bo Diddley, but they, he was tuned to a chord and played just rhythm. And I, I'm a rhythm guy. I've always been a rhythm guy. I'm not a lead solo guy. I get asked to do it sometimes, and I do a very sloppy job of it, but I have fun doing it, and it's, and it's okay. But the uh, rhythm, who, who I don't know anybody on this planet that can play the same thing over and over and over for three hours. I can. I don't know what it, what possesses me to do it. I don't mind playing the same thing over and over. To me, it just gets a little better and a little better and a little better. <laughs>
0: But your your thing is, is the lick, though. Those little things in between lines and stuff, that, that that's the kind of crop of magic for for, for a lot of people, yeah, isn't it? maybe.
1: Like I said, if there's a trick to it, you don't miss the rhythm when I go to play a lick or something. And that's kind of hard to do unless you're playing dead on the beat or the feel of the beat. We we learn playing dead on is not always the answer. We learn that playing with Lin drums and... And computer drums that are yeah. dead on the money all the time. Yeah. No, sometimes some R&B has to be behind the beat, some R&B has to be a little bit ahead of the beat. Some of it has a little of both. And you got to know when to do it. The chord changes are fairly simple, but the music itself, the notes, are a little bit different. You got to know that music. You got to feel it.
0: What's your next gig? Do you think after you've made this album? What, I what, have what no you,
1: idea. What... The next gig we do, we were uh, the singer Roger is coming in here sunday i think and we rehearse monday night and tuesday and do a radio show on wednesday for the new album
0: steve it's been fantastic talking to you thank you so much
1: thank you jim i really appreciate it great questions i hope you got what you needed and i was glad to do it
0: absolute honor talking to you long may you continue steve my pleasure There's a Spotify playlist accompanying this episode. Here's One I Made Earlier, Steve Cropper, tracks from Fire It Up, Dock of the Bay Itself and lots of other Steve Cropper productions and compositions. Please like and comment wherever you get your podcasts uh, because that drives people towards us and we really appreciate that. Uh, Or you can pop along to jimirvin.com and leave a voice message there uh, on the pages for Here's One I Made Earlier and my other podcast, You're Not On The List. Thanks so much for listening, and do join us again next time to hear another musical creator telling us about one they made earlier. Bye-bye.